Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Did you enjoy your interregnum? We didn't get a chance to mention when we had Chris Conacher on a couple of weeks ago that, you know, we took some of the summer off. Yes, the interregnum ended. It was it was nice, and we both we decided to do this because we both had a lot on our plate with other work, and yeah, the weather was too hot, and we just kind of didn't feel like talking about music. But we're back, and we're going to talk about music every two weeks now. Well, one of the funny things that happened during the interregnum and over the summer was this Kate Bush phenomenon. And um, Kate Bush, in case you don't know, had <laughs> a, a, a huge hit again. With running up that hill because it was used in the TV show Stranger Things. And it was the first time she had a number one song, I believe, in the UK. It might have been the first time in the US, for sure. Um, yeah. Kate Bush is not very well known in this country. Sure, there are plenty of people who know who she is, but I can't imagine that she's very well known, that people know she's got six, seven, eight records, that she's done stuff with Peter Gabriel. I mean, she's very big in Europe, but she's not... Very well known in this country, so it was it was quite it was it was it was great actually that Kate Bush was coming back. Now the interesting thing about the Kate Bush song is that music doesn't sound old, does it? You listen to Running Up That Hill, does it sound old to you? Yeah, it sounds like I don't know. It sounds familiar. Yeah, it sounds. See, that's the thing. We don't have old and new anymore. That's right. Okay, Elvis sounds old. Early Beatles sounds old, but we have familiar now and we have heard so many different kinds of music and we hear them over and over that it's just familiar and that's the miraculous thing about this kate bush thing is that a, a song that was written in i'm going to say 82 83 something like that can come back 40 years later and still sound fresh and still have something to say to people it's not that they like it because it's old it's not like how much is that doggy in the window and then, oh that's a cute <laughs> song from the 50s the song that I like to use as a, as a reference point in my life is um, that song that Sha Na Na did at Woodstock, right? What's that song? At the Hop. At the Hop. Danny and the Juniors, big hit for them in 1959. And it sounds old. Yes. Right? Sounds way old. Even in 1969, old. it sounds old. Yeah, and 10 years later, it sounded old. But now, as we've discussed a million times, the music that kind of came after the 80s sort of homogenized, sort of got set. There's no new music. Now, Here's what this is what I wanted to talk about. Uh, the other thing that happened over the summer was that there was a lot of purchasing and, and bartering for rights to fabulous artists' music. All right, so the Kate Bush thing is interesting because uh, I don't know if I've mentioned, but my landlord is a farmer. He farms 200 acres, and he has five holiday cottages that are on one side of my house. And... I guess this is around August. I was outside and I was talking to some of the people in one of the holiday cottages. And one was a lady in her 60s and she was, I don't know how she mentioned it, but she was talking about music. And she said that her granddaughter knows all the lyrics to all the songs and even that song from Stranger Things, she said. And this is a 16-year-old girl who knows all the lyrics to Stranger Things. Kate Bush is now 63, so that's a big gap. You know, she wrote it in her 20s. This is, you know, 40-year-old song. But there is no more. Decades are gone. Decades are passe. You can't. I think the, the gist of this is, and you know I've been trying to come up with a generalized theory of music for, for as long as we've been doing this podcast, and this is part <laughs> of that. 
Now, there is no old or new. It's just is. It's like when we were kids, as an example, you heard Stephen Foster songs, right? We all learned, like, she'll be coming around the mountain or Dino won't you blow. We didn't think about the context when those songs came out. They just existed. Mm. And so now... You hear music without the context. You don't, as, as younger people are discovering older music, and I don't even want to use those words. I don't even want to use younger and older. I just want to say as people are discovering music, they're not interested in the era that it came out. They're, the only interest they have is what kind, of, what kind of music is that? Is it the genre that I like? So rather than looking at music horizontally the way we do, that music comes in waves, that music ha- has new kinds of music, they don't have that anymore. So there's got to be some other way to, 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 to rationalize the music. And it's not because it's from the punk era, because it's from the disco era, because it's from the folk rock era. It's because that's a folk rock song. That's a punk rock song. That's a disco song. But when it came out, how it was produced, what was going on culturally when the song came out, none of that matters at all. It's just there. And it's a fascinating thing. And that's why... Bands like Kate Bush, bands like Kate Bush, artists like Kate Bush can have a hit, forty, have a ghost hit 40 years later because it doesn't sound any different from the derivative music that people are listening to today. And I, I think that's absolutely great. Now, I wanted to tie that in with the purchasing of rights because you don't necessarily need to be a top-tier um, artist like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who... Bruce Springsteen, to have a hit. Kate Bush, as we've been just been saying, she's very well known in Europe, not very well known in the United States, yet here she is, this obscure British 1980s song lady having a huge hit, and people's granddaughters know all the words. So I, I really think that's amazing, and I think that's a big driver for why these property rights, these publishing rights, composing rights, are going to get really big, because it's, as I said, it's not just the top guys, it could be anybody. And if you have some hustlers, you know, you could sell those mechanicals. You could say, hey, you know, this grassroots song might be just perfect for that. <laughs> or, you know, this uh, this Heaven 17 song could be the perfect thing. And then, boom, Heaven 17 is big again. Or any number of things. But that's why I think that's going to be big. Because there is no new music. Everything is derivative. I think we've I think we've nailed that to the wall. There's nothing new, just derivative. I wonder if there are people like casting directors for music. I mean, I'm sure there are. A casting director is familiar with a certain number of actors and has a whole palette, a whole range of agencies they work with, and they've got you know screen tests and still photos, and they look for the right people. There must be something similar for music. Like there is. They they have a music director. And, you know, that's not just saying... Well, but no, a music director is the person who chooses for a particular show or a particular film. I'm talking about the one who's selling, who's pushing stuff to the other You're saying ones. a third party, a broker or right, something. Right, a broker, yeah. I think the brokers work for the rights holders and that they go around and selling them. Just like the old days in the record company, they would have salespeople go around and pushing the new music. Now they just have salespeople going around pushing the old music. When I did stuff for BMI, one of the re- I did used to do a podcast for BMI. They would feature some of their some of the artists that they wanted to promote, and one of the reasons they did that was in order to sell mechanicals. They wanted the music to be used in television shows and movies, pri- mostly television shows because there are many more of them. 
But that's one of the reasons that they wanted to feature uh, some of their newer artists. But now... <laughs> They don't need new artists. Now it's It doesn't matter if they're new or old, they get the same amount of money, although that's not true. They negotiate de depending on how a piece of music is used in a film or a TV show, you get you can negotiate different levels of rights. If it's used as a theme song like for opening credits, then they get more than if it's just used in in the show. One thing that happened during the Interregnum is I was watching some TV series, might have been a BBC series or might have been Amazon Prime. And it was something set in the present. And the opening credits song was Gimme Shelter. Mm. And it had nothing to do with 1968 or the Rolling Stones or anything like that. And it said to me that what they want to do is let you settle into this TV show or film, whatever it was, with some familiar music. Well, not only that, because Gimme Shelter is, is considered to be like a something ominous is coming towards us. That's generally what it means. Yet this is not what it was used for. It was just used for that sort of walk-in music to get you in the mood for something. It wasn't, it didn't get far enough to hear the, you know, much of the singing and the protest element of it. It had nothing to do with that. So I could understand if it was something about, say, 70s protest you know, war protest or something, that's what you'd use. But this was a totally different series. I should have made a note of what it was. And it surprised me because it was really just there to be there, right? To be familiar, to mm. be recognizable. Usually when I hear Gimme Shelter and specifically Gimme Shelter, it usually has something to do with some kind of foreboding. That, yeah. You know, some disaster is about to happen, a storm or a murder or whatever. Something sneaky same, and awful. Same with something like Street Fighting Man. Yeah, It right. has that but kind that's, of energy. That, that's older music. I, I, that's 70s music. And I think, well, that's played a lot. But I think what's, what, the interesting thing is uh, the, the, this 40-year-old, and since MTV, there seems to be this homogenization where you just don't hear old. You don't hear that it's older. Um, well, I, you didn't on MTV because there were no music videos older than MTV, right? There were some that were made in the 70s, which I don't know how they were distributed back then. They usually went to radio stations, TV shows, media outlets, things like that, and maybe you would see them. MTV launched in 1981. In 1982, I remember Thriller came out. I had a job in a video store for a few months in midtown Manhattan, and we were selling videos of that, nine-minute video cassette VHS tapes of it. We would just open up a box and sell them like that. They would just go crazy. But so pre-81, pre-MTV, you've got very few videos. And once you got to that stage, because the music was written to work with videos, the videos were made to work with the music and generally showing the band, but not always. And I'll link to our interview with Kurt Anderson, who talked about how music hasn't changed much since the 80s. And arguably, there have been some changes. House music didn't exist. A couple of other electro genres that are new. But if you look at mainstream rock and roll, if you look at mainstream pop, aside from the technology and the techniques like auto-tune, the music hasn't changed that much. It really... And so this contributes to that 
lengthening of the now in some ways. Two bands that my son really likes that I've mentioned on the show are Fontaine's DC and Murder Capital. They're both Irish punk bands, or I don't like to say punk because anything post-clash isn't really punk, but still. And you listen to them and I hear echoes of all sorts of stuff from the 70s and the 80s, from the clash, from the cure, from, you know, other sort of indie... That indie movement in the UK in the early 80s that was a, a springboard for so many bands that became big after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like I said, I think a lot of music is derivative. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, I could be a cantankerous old guy and say, you guys, we had all the best music and you guys are just imitating it. But personally, I like a lot of new music. I like an awful lot of new music because because it is derivative, because they're taking it and doing some newer sort of, or at least keeping it going. Thank, thanks for not inventing new music because there's a lot to catch up on. Yes. <laughs> there really, yes, really that's is. True. Well, that's true. I've got to get you... this in. i got to get this point in because this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time and we forget. Is that young people, younger people, moderns, as I prefer to call them, haven't had the time to listen to all the music that we've listened to. Nor do we have the time to listen to music, new, newer music coming out now. And I'm, by newer music, I mean new music that's being released. Because there's so much of it. It's, it's splintered everywhere. There's no way that we're going to catch up, and there's no way that the moderns are going to catch up. So there's going to be some... Once, once all us old guys are gone, and the moderns are the only ones left, that's all the music that there'll be. <laughs> well, if you think about it, we grew up listening to music from the 60s and the 70s, right? When we were teenagers. There wasn't a lot of music a lot of music was not accessible, whereas the moderns now, good term for that, moderns, instead of all these bogus generational names, the moderns, they have access to 80 or 90 million tracks on their phone, so they can listen to everything. And oh, we would have loved that, wouldn't we, back in they the 70s? They can listen to everything, but they can't listen to everything that we listen to because they haven't had the time yet. They haven't had 40 years well, but that's the thing. So hold on. We, we had, I'm going to say 10 years of music in the 70s, right? From mid-60s to mid-70s. We had 10 years of music to listen to. They've got 40 or 50 years of music to listen to. So the amount of time that they can spend listening to any given decade is one-fifth as much. So they'll never be able to listen to as much, which leads to the point of the importance of who makes the playlists, how does the algorithm choose... How do these older songs get into these playlists to reinforce that familiarity so when they are played as a soundtrack for a TV show, it's recognizable? It's that broker. That broker (laughs) working for the, what are they? I want to call them entrepreneurial musical, I don't know. They're musical rights holders. Okay, rights holders. Um, yeah, but they're not and, the original. And some of them are record holders. labels, and some of them are other companies who've branched out and who've purchased catalogs of different musicians. And so these people have said, "We have our crackerjack sales team here who was going to sell these." And so the the perpetuation of this music will go on, but only some of it, not all of it. Not right. You know, it'll only be. It'll only be She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain. It'll only be Dinah Won't You Blow. It'll only be like a few songs that, that actually last, which is interesting. The ones that have staying power, it'll be interesting. that yeah. When I'm on my deathbed, I'll say, tell me which songs we're still listening to from 1970. Yeah. That would, that would please me. I, I would say if you were to sit down and 
crunch some data, you could probably find a thousand songs from the 60s and the 70s that still get regular play. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Not but, a lot more, but not much less, I think. Actually, that's about the, the number of songs that an oldies radio station might play. About a thousand songs. About any yeah. radio station is only going to play about a thousand songs. Although I don't How even do you know why I oldies talk these about these days. In the 70s, the oldies radio station was like pre-Beatles, right? Well, the, uh, I, oldies is maybe not a good example. Um what you're seeing mostly now as far as radio stations go is like this classic hits sort of thing. So there's always going to – it seems to me there's always a component of, of classic and hit. How much they do, it depends on the focus groups they do, how they – you know, what songs do uh, guys 35 to 55 still like to listen to, that sort of thing. The funny thing the, – the, the strange thing is is like radio stations are still single stream – productions you know there's still yeah. just a single play on choice yeah so i mean it's not it's not like uh and there are thousands of them it's not like what it was when we were little when we we'd have three radio stations to listen to maybe that we tolerated it's like you could you can go anywhere and hear music you can just stick with spotify or apple music you can go to Bandcamp. you can go to any number of streaming there are tons of them so it's it's strange to see the just well it'll be interesting to see what songs survive I so I've just gone on to Apple Music, and I'm looking at the Monday morning playlist. And if you have a phone listening, hey, Siri, play the Monday morning playlist, you'll get songs by. I'm just going to say a couple, because what stands out is some of them have been around for quite some time. Blink 82, that's not recent. The Killers, Gorillaz, that could, some of these bands do have new songs. The White Stripes, Seven Nation Army, that's like 15 or 20 years old. What do you know? Kate Bush is right there. ACDC, Green Day's American Idiot. Now, interestingly, we were focusing more on stuff pre-90s, right, when we were talking just before. But a lot of this stuff is 90s, isn't it? Well, think about it. If you're 40 years old, you were born in 1982. 1992 yeah. is when you started thinking about listening to music, and that's why you hear a lot of 90s music. Right. So David Bowie, Let's Dance some Guns N' Roses, Billy Idol, Rebel Yell. I'll take That's early 80s, but that's MTV, right? That was an MTV thing. Don't forget, the, after MTV, the son of MTV is YouTube. And how many people spent time in their youth just watching playlist after playlist after playlist yeah, after playlist? but that's different. It's different. It's, it's non-curated. That's true, but yes and but no. MTV was curated it's, like a radio station. But YouTube has playlists that are curated. Yeah. Like perhaps you'd like to watch these videos, and I see that all the time. And they they recommend that I watch videos by musicians that I'm not interested in hearing. Okay, let me just go on with a couple of older tracks. Here's a cheap trick: Led Zeppelin, Rock and Roll. I want to be sedated by the Ramones. So so we're getting back in the '70s. See, um, I want to be sedated by the Ramones is the perfect example of a Stephen Foster song. It's yes, ageless. Yes, exactly. It's completely ageless. You don't know, need to know when it came out. It yeah. could have come out in 1965. It could have come out in 1999. It, you don't know. Yeah. What's interesting is this playlist doesn't have rap. It's all rock stuff. That's very interesting also. Th this is the Monday morning playlist. Now, I don't know why, in particular, each playlist has whatever it has, right? But it's not the kind of pop that you get in, let's say, here's The Morning Commute, Beyonce, Harry Styles, Adele, The Weeknd, Dua Lipa, Justin Bieber, that sort of stuff. So it's a totally different yeah. style of music. And that's interesting to 
think that when they're selling you playlists for moments, each moment is I don't want to say a different decade, a different 30-year period, roughly. Maybe. I, I Again, I don't think age or time or any words like that should be used to describe the playlist because I don't think they're thinking in those kinds of terms. I think they're thinking in terms of familiarity and what do people know and what do people want to hear and what is the song that will activate you on Monday morning. And the songs that you listed, you know, they're up, right? They're all up songs. Yeah, yes. They're not... There's no dirges or <laughs> funeral or marches or anything like that. Yes, there's no funeral marches. We're recording this on the day of the Queen's funeral. And uh, while I didn't watch it, I put the BBC News Channel on when I'm eating lunch, watch on my iPad. And this was the period when they were taking the coffin from Westminster Hall to wherever they were going to put it on a hearse to take it to Windsor. And there was this continuous playlist of music, 110 beats per minute, of funeral marches. And the marching band, the military marching band, just kept going through one to another. And you heard the Chopin, some other things, and I just kept waiting for the Star Wars march to come in there just once. I've, I've been, <laughs> I, I, I'm a football fan, and I, up until this year, I didn't really pay much attention to college football, which is all day Saturday. And I said, this year, I'm going to start watching college football. And of course, I have to pay attention to the marching band. I was in the band. Yes. And I, I heard some band playing um, that Led Zeppelin song, Cashmere. I heard, I heard the marching yeah. band playing Cashmere as a pep song. And I'm like, Cashmere? <laughs> what? But it's, it's, it's a cool song that... It's a perfect marching band song. Well, well That's it kind of is, actually. It might even be in 6-8. I'm not even sure. But the fact that they think there are 100,000 people in this stadium are going to get peppy when they hear, um, when they hear this Led Zeppelin song, I, I just, I'm just surprised. And it's like, I can't tell if it's, is it because it sounds so cool or is it because it's, you know, it has that unusual sound or what is it about the song that you like? I mean, I know what I like about it, but I, what, what, how did it get to the level where it's now being played by college pep bands at, at at college football games it's weird same thing with the same thing with that white stripe song yeah i think on an absolute level songs that are easy to remember uh, that the melodies are easy to remember you know think of cashmere as like beethoven's fifth symphony right it's got it's got a riff and you remember it and you don't have to remember a lot of the song to recognize it yeah that's true, that's true. and it's the and kind it, of thing that the, it, it, has, kind of, it has an energy. It does have an energy. It's, it's a foot stamping song if you're in a stadium. Although you got to stamp pretty quick for Kashmir because it is pretty fast. But, that's a, but again, that's a song from the 70s that I would think, how do you people know this song? If you like that, you ought to listen to the rest of that album, Physical Graffiti. But, I, I'm going to speculate that some marching band in the 70s started playing it, and then you've got these <laughs> marching band competitions, and then the other marching bands, because it does – I can hear the brass chords of that sounding really oh, sure. good. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. when I was in high school, the music we played, we played Hello, Dolly, for goodness sake. That was one of our big pep songs. Oh, that it is was sad. sad. That is so really sad. sad. Luckily, we would have also have things like Peter Gunn, yeah, you know, but you don't hear those songs anymore. Yeah. I mean, Peter Gunn is kind of a cute song, uh, I guess. Maybe um, they might play it, but I don't think a lot of people know what it is. They may know the riff, because it's got. That oh, everyone nice... knows the riff. Yeah, yeah, but but, but that that's a riff that that's almost a a stock riff now, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, 
Yeah. That, that like your basic blues that starts off with a couple of bass notes, that kind of thing, you can fit it in anywhere. Yeah, you could play it in anything on top of it, sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Do we want to do next tracks? Yes, we do. Because I've got a pick that is, I want to say vintage. Just released the 1971 RCA demos by Lou Reed called I'm So Free. And this is about 56 minutes. It's Lou Reed with an acoustic guitar. He's in the studio. You can hear a bit of a banter when he flubs and all this. It's, you know, this is a proper, he's doing a studio recording to sell his songs. I don't know the actual history. This is probably demos he was recording for RCA for his solo records, but maybe he was also recording some of them for people to potentially cover. A lot of songs that he later recorded, Perfect Day, Wild Child, Lisa Says, I Love You, Kill Your Sons, Berlin Ocean, Ride Into the Sun, I Can't Stand It. It's a really interesting selection, and it makes you think. Now, remember, there's 1971, so Velvet Underground is already on the way out or probably finished by then. It makes you think that he could have been a singer-songwriter, kind of a Bob Dylan-like singer-songwriter with the acoustic guitar. Didn't he write songs for Pickwick? Didn't he write, like— cover songs like he would write a there would be a popular song and then he would write a song like it and someone else would do it yeah something like that yeah i think he did that but that's pre-velvet here we are in 1971 he's launching his solo career so i think he's just basically saying i've got all these songs that i wrote and we never recorded for the velvet underground and this is like four albums you know, these songs would take like four albums before they were all released. Really nice. The sound is quite good. You can hear the voice isn't perfect because it's a demo and it's not made for recording. But it's a nice glimpse into Lou Reed's music before he became Lou Reed, which, well, 1972 Transformer, 1973 Berlin, etc. The rest is history. Doug, what have you got? I don't really have a lot to say about this particular record. It's more about the genre. Uh, I'm going to give a listen to... Tribute to the Martyrs by a band called Steel Pulse. Great reggae band. And the, the, what happened to reggae? <laughs> I mean, I, it seems to me like blinked and it all went away. Um, during the 80s, I don't think there was a club where I grew up that didn't have a reggae night at least once a week. And there was, you know, a bunch of local reggae bands that used to come and play. There were a, a lot of reggae records available. And... Uh, Gee, I don't know what <laughs> Black Uhuru and, you know, Steel Pulse and bands like that. I don't know whatever happened to them. <laughs> I'm sure people still listen to reggae, and I'm sure it's still being made. It's just that the popularity of it seems to have evaded most moderns. Uh, I think the stuff is pretty cool. This is one of my favorite Steel Pulse albums, Tribute to the Martyrs. It's got a lot of great songs on it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say. If you haven't listened to a lot of great reggae, if the only thing you know about reggae is Bob Marley, then listen to Steel Pulse. Tribute to the Martyrs is my next track. This was episode number 240 of the next track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And please, you can support the next track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's listener support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.